Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Tony Katz today. I'm Guy Relford in for Tony. Tony's on some well-deserved vacation and is traveling. Um, and he's out this week, so I'm sitting in today. You're going to have other uh, substitute hosts sitting in here for the rest of this week, and I'm sure we'll welcome Tony back here after the holidays. Um, as you've been hearing on the news and repeatedly here, right here on WIBC, uh, a lot is going on or perhaps not going on on the Build Back Better plan, which really is one of the centerpieces of the Joe Biden presidency um, thus far. And when you look back on that campaign that resulted in Joe Biden being uh, our, our current president, you look at his campaign promises. What, what, did, what did Joe Biden promise to do? And obviously a lot of people voted for Joe Biden simply because they didn't want to see Donald Trump in the White House for four more years. But other than simply replacing Donald Trump, in terms of any actual policy, anything that Joe Biden proposed to do or promised to do, if you dissect that a little bit, get into the substance of that a little bit, and start looking at what it is that people voted for Joe Biden to come in and do, other than simply not be Donald Trump, it's really two things. It's his economic plan. And in large part, that is based on the Build Back Better plan and his promises to eradicate COVID. Now, between you and me, I don't think there's a whole lot a president can do to so-called eradicate COVID. I think there are very limited things. It is a virus. As you hear people say all the time, a virus is going to virus. It's going to mutate, as we've seen now multiple times with the Omicron variant running around now, apparently very contagious. But viruses are going to do what viruses can, are, are going to do, and there's only so much that human beings, including, yes, the leader of the free world, can do about a virus. That's why a lot of the campaign promises, right up there with, I'm going to cure cancer, were a little silly when he made them. But that's where accountability comes in. When you run for office and you make promises, there's absolutely nothing wrong with holding that candidate accountable for accomplishing or not accomplishing what that candidate promised to do during a campaign. And for all of his faults, which are many, Donald Trump has to be given credit for accomplishing in very large part exactly what he said he was going to do when he campaigned. Did he say he was going to cut regulation? Yes. Did he do that? Absolutely. Did he say he was going to cut taxes and that was going to have a positive effect on the economy? Yes. And did he do that? Yes, he did. As a Second Amendment guy, I mean, my full-time job is I'm a Second Amendment lawyer. I'm very active politically on Second Amendment issues. I was not not particularly thrilled that in the first two years of his presidency, when we had the wherewithal to do so in the legislature, we didn't get more done on Second Amendment issues. And yes, he did campaign in very large part on Second Amendment issues. And yes, I was there in Louisville during the campaign before he was elected in 2016 when the NRA endorsed him, which gave his campaign a big boost. He also came out and I think did what was absolutely brilliant at the time, and I've said so since, 
and if this was his idea personally, he deserves a hell of a lot of credit. He actually released his list of candidates that he would look to as nominees for the U.S. Supreme Court. And an awful lot of us, millions of us, I'll guarantee you, including this guy right here, voted for Donald Trump in large part because of what we hoped and expected he would do if elected in terms of who he would nominate to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, that list saw some revision over time, but he nominated exactly who he said he was going to nominate and got them all confirmed. And this Supreme Court is dramatically, fundamentally different than the Supreme Court that Donald Trump inherited as president. And if you're like me and you care about Second Amendment issues, this court is strong on Second Amendment issues. Donald Trump campaigned on that, and he delivered exactly what he said he was going to deliver. Which brings us back to Joe Biden. What did Joe Biden campaign on? Now, again, it's, it's reflective of even things like what you see on social media today. You out on social media and you say something negative about Joe Biden, the first 15 responses... And, of course, it's social media, so there, there will be all kinds of vitriol and anger and personal attacks. But undoubtedly, invariably, and predictably, what you're always going to get is an attack on Trump. If you come out and say, Joe Biden's tie looks lousy today, the first 10 responses will be, well, it's not one of those idiotic too-long ties that Donald Trump wore. Anything you say about Joe Biden, the only response from Democrats or liberals or people who support Joe Biden as president is going to be something to attack Donald Trump. That's just the way it is. But if you can separate yourself at all from the idea simply that he's not Donald Trump and ask yourself, even as a Democrat or a liberal or someone who wants to see him reelected, and that number, according to poll numbers, is dwindling rapidly, but assuming for a minute there's still some number of people out there would like to see him reelected, and you can separate out the obvious issue simply that he's not Donald Trump, what can you point to? What can you point to as an accomplishment? And the two centerpieces, as I mentioned earlier, of his campaign were what? Besides replacing Donald Trump, eradicating COVID, and to a very large degree, the economic and social programs that are reflected in the Build Back Better plan. So what's the status of that plan? Passed the House a month ago. Now, did so by a very thin margin given the current constituency of the House, but 220 to 213, with one Democrat actually crossing the aisle, Jared Golden from Maine, and voting no. But it still passed the House. All right, now it lands in the Senate. Things are a little different in the Senate on a, on a couple of different levels. Now, ordinarily, a bill like this, especially a bill as massive as this, a, a bill as encompassing as this, and, 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 and definitely a bill as expensive as this, and, of course, there's an argument out there about exactly what this will or will not cost, or even what the price tag is, without considering the increase in taxes that it proposes, supposedly on people who make $400,000 and up. But most people agree it's somewhere around $1.7 trillion, including the Congressional Office of Management and Budget. That's about the price tag. 
Something that big, ordinarily you would think, would go to the full Senate. But no, because it is to some degree a budget matter, or at least the Democrats have described it that way. They've leveraged this process called reconciliation. Budget-related bills are exempt from the normal process that requires them to go through debate, be called up for a vote. In other words, the closure of debate, something we actually call cloture, spelled with a T, that requires 60 votes. Well, if you take a bill through reconciliation, which the Democrats are doing with Build Back Better, you only need 50. All right. Where's that leave us? We have a 50-50 Senate with Vice President Kamala Harris able to break ties, which means there can be no margin for error, exactly zero margin for error of Democrats supporting the bill. Joe Manchin has been in negotiation with Senate leadership, with Democrat leadership, including Nancy Pelosi, and with the White House. Reports last week where he spent a lot of time, having been summoned to the White House, having face-to-face meetings with President Biden. Why are we worried about Joe Manchin? Because he's one of two senators, Democrats, along with Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, who have expressed reservations over this bill. If either one of them say no, it's dead. It's gone. Because there's no indication whatsoever any Republican would cross the aisle and vote for it. And with all these negotiations and all the pressure being levied on Joe Manchin of West Virginia, a lot of people have predicted he was going to cave or, more likely, reach a compromise with the White House. And there was some discussion last week that he had brought in an outline of a bill that he would support. And he had called out some things like uh, help with health care or child care, of things he could get behind. But he was uncomfortable with the price tag. He was uncomfortable uncom- with how many other things were lumped into this bill. And both sides of the aisle are incredibly guilty of that. Ooh, look, there's a big bill. Let's slap whatever other crud we can possibly into this in hopes of getting it passed. But he's been expressing that doubt and those concerns for quite some time. Last week, as we went into last week, I think most people watching the process would have predicted that a compromise was going to be reached last week, especially after he spent all the time in the White House that he did. And as as much pressure from Schumer in the Senate, Pelosi in the House, and other Republicans, and of course all the shrill voices out in the media, including social media. A lot of folks expected a compromise. And seeing some trillion-dollar bill that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema could support, and with only 51 votes required, including the vote of the vice president, most people assumed that was going to happen until Fox News Sunday. Fox News Sunday, Brett Baer brings in Joe Manchin, to to specifically discuss where he is on Build Back Better. And you know my concerns I had, and I still have these concerns, and where I'm at right now, the inflation that I was concerned about, it's not transitory, it's real, it's harming every West Virginian. It's making it almost difficult for them to continue to go to their jobs, the cost of gasoline, the cost of groceries, the cost of utility bills, all of these things are hitting in every aspect of their life. And, and, you, and you start looking, and then, then you have the uh, debt that we're carrying at $29 trillion. You have also the geopolitical unrest that we have. You have the COVID, the COVID uh, variant, uh, and that is re- wreaking havoc again. People are concerned. I've been with my family. I know everyone's concerned. So when you have these things coming at you the way they are right now, uh, I've always said this, Brett, 
if I can't go home and explain it to the people of West Virginia, I can't vote for it. And I cannot vote to continue with this piece of legislation. I just can't. I've tried everything humanly possible. I can't get there. You're done. This is, this is a no. This is a no. How about that? That's definitive. That's not, I'm still in negotiation. That's not, mm, a compromise can still be reached. That's no. That, until something dramatic changes, means Build Back Better is dead in this session. Interesting enough. We're taking a break. We come back. We'll talk about what, where does that leave President Biden and what was the reaction, whether from Senate leadership or from liberal pundits, to the very emphatic, very specific no we just heard from Joe Manchin. Right now we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. It's a pleasure to be with you. So we just heard the sound clip where it's very unequivocal. There's, there's no maybes about this. Joe Manchin just came out and said he's no. And, and what's been interesting to me, one, I did not think we would get that definitive an answer out of Joe Manchin. I, I, I've liked Joe Manchin for a while. Yes, he's a Democrat, but he's clearly a moderate. And one thing that I like about him, which is exactly the opposite, uh, uh, the basis for a lot of criticism being levied at him right now, is that he apparently listens to his constituents back in West Virginia. And in fact, if you talk to somebody from West Virginia, and, and this could be a Republican or a Democrat, and you ask him about Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin is an absolute rock star back in West Virginia. He may have more name recognition within his state than any senator in the country. Now, part of that is because West Virginia is a relatively small state in terms of population. But his constituents clearly love the hell out of the guy. And what I like about him is that he apparently listens to them when it comes to how he votes and says he's going to vote in the Senate. And I think that's why West Virginians continue to send him back to the Senate, because he is their voice in government. And last time I checked, I mean, as a constitutional rights attorney, I spent a lot of time going back and, and, and reading documents. The, the founding documents of this country, not just the Constitution or Declaration of Independence themselves, or back to the Articles of Confederation before the Constitution, but the Federalist Papers that talk about the concept, the idea behind our whole system of government. And I, I, the, the, the Federalist Papers are, are, are fascinating to read. And you want a, a shortcut to it, uh, Hillsdale College has a, a course. It's free. It's online. I've taken it twice on the Federalist Papers. Doesn't take a long time to complete. But what this is, is this is essentially the authors of the Constitution pitching it to the rest of the country. James Madison was a primary author. John Jay on international and legal issues. And when you go through the 
documents and, 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 and read them and understand what the founders of this country were trying to accomplish, what Joe Manchin just did is exactly what they had in mind, which is what? Listening to your constituents and voting not only their voice, but your conscience in terms of what's best for your constituents and what those constituents want. That is the very basis for our system of government in this country, which is why it was fascinating, fascinated, I should say, to see some of the criticism of Joe Manchin come out and say this is potentially the end of democracy in America when one senator can stand in the way of a bill like Build Back Better. The end of democracy in America. The, quote, threat to the future of democracy. How ludicrous is that? And, and because he, the fallacy of that, again, I saw this from Nancy Pelosi. I saw a similar quote from AOC, not that she deserves any credibility at all. But Chuck Schumer, when one senator stands in the way of a bill, that's not what democracy is all about. This has nothing to do with one senator standing in front of a bill. This has something to do with 51 senators standing in front of a bill, a majority. The fact that he's one Democrat in a 50-50 Senate that ultimately gives him this responsibility and this power doesn't mean it's inconsistent with our concept of government, and quite the contrary. If his constituents oppose this bill, if his conscience opposes this bill, our system of government expects him to vote against it, irrespective of what the rest of his party wants. Party politics and flowing with the direction of your party, being pushed around by your party to the extent that's inconsistent with the wants, desires, and voice of your constituents, it's precisely the opposite of what democracy is all about. Yet, if you listen to the Democrats right now, they're ignoring the other 50 votes against Build Back Better, laying it all in one guy's lap, Joe Manchin. Those are the folks that needs a little help, that need a little help, in terms of a history lesson on what democracy actually means and what this process actually displays about the functioning of a democracy exactly the way the founders intended for it to function. And with that, we're here coming up on the bottom of the hour. It's time to take a break. This is Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. Welcome back. I'm Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today as Tony enjoys some well-deserved vacation. Talking before the break about really what I think anyone would have to describe as the twin pillars of Biden's presidency in terms of his promises and what he used as a platform to get himself elected. And again, separate and apart from simply, I'm not Donald Trump, and if you vote for me, you won't have to put up with mean tweets anymore. One of the primary things he talked about was getting rid of COVID. And those were actually words he used, getting rid of COVID. And at the time, I mean, 
That may not be quite as outrageous as him promising to cure cancer, which he also did. But getting rid of COVID, much like the promise to cure cancer, you know, I, I looked at that. And look, I understand it's a campaign promise. And I understand an awful lot of people don't take them awfully seriously. But I think that's a problem with politics in America because we absolutely should. And a promise not kept ought to be a very specific basis for a dramatic loss of trust. And you know what I equate it to? I may have a little different perspective on this than a lot of folks. Because, again, I'm a lawyer by trade, and I try cases. And something that I've been saying to juries for years, during opening statement, opening statements for a trial lawyer are very, very important. Because other than the jury selection process itself, which is more accurately called jury deselection, you're simply excusing those jurors you really don't want. But other than the jury selection process, the opening statement is really the first time that as a group, you get to address the jury. You get to talk directly to them. That comes again in closing argument, obviously. But during the trial, you don't talk to the jury directly. You talk to witnesses. You talk to the judge. You cross-examine the other side's witnesses. But the first time you get to address the jury as a whole is during opening statement. And the opening statement as it's designed, in fact, if you go beyond this and venture into argument or other activities, then you're probably going to get an objection and get rebuked by the, by the judge. What opening statement's all about is essentially a lawyer's description of what the evidence is going to prove in that case. And, and, and an awful lot of your sentences during opening statements say the evidence will prove. And you lay out for the jurors exactly what you contend the evidence will prove. And then you sit down. Then you deliver on those promises. And then during closing argument, you get to argue why the evidence as introduced applied to the law as instructed by the judge means your client wins. And you argue that. That's the difference between closing argument and opening statements. But what I always say as part of my opening statement is I always say, ladies and gentlemen, in this opening statement, I have just made to you a series of promises. I have made promises to you in terms of what the evidence will prove. And I want you to hold me accountable for those promises. Because if I promise to prove something that at the end of this trial I did not prove, you should hold me accountable. And that should impact how you view the arguments I make during closing argument and the guilt or innocence of my client. Ooh, why would I do that? Why would I walk out on that plank? Because I then say, the state has also made you a series of promises. They've also told you what they contend the evidence will prove. And just like I want you to hold me accountable for the promises I make in opening statement, I want you to hold the state and the deputy prosecuting attorney responsible for the promises they made too. Because what I am contending and what I am telling you right now is they will not prove what they've told you they're going to prove. And here's why. And lay out where the weaknesses in their case are and where they're not going to be able to prove. When you went through the Kyle Rittenhouse closing arguments, as compared to the opening statements, opening statements, one of the reasons the state lost the Kyle Rittenhouse case is they dramatically overpromised in opening statements. 
And the jury held him accountable. They said they were going to prove that Kyle Rittenhouse was chasing down his victims. The evidence didn't show that. They said he, they were going to prove he was lying in wait for his victims. The evidence didn't show that. They promised to prove beyond a reasonable doubt he did not act in self-defense. The evidence didn't show that. And at the end of the day, the jury held them accountable. So that's my mindset as a trial lawyer. Is I have a mindset that if someone makes me promises, I'm going to hold them accountable. Because I expect the same on promises that I make. And so when I hear promises like we're going to get rid of COVID, my first reaction is, well, how are you going to do that? And unfortunately, in politics today, we've devolved to this point where no one really even expects to hold politicians accountable for the promises they make. Oh, well, you know, they have to say something pretty dramatic when they're campaigning. No one really expects them to accomplish that. The hell? I do. And that's why, for all the criticism I have of President Trump and all the baggage that he brought to the White House, which was immense, he delivered on his campaign promises. And, he, and, and, and anything he didn't accomplish, he sure as hell tried. And his campaign promises invariably were actually accomplishable. They were actually something that could be measured, could be assessed. Did you do this or did you, did you not? And they were something that actually had as a viable outcome coming to pass, like reducing regulation, like cutting taxes, like cutting taxes to a point that it brought jobs back to America. The jobs numbers didn't lie. Those were measurable. And he delivered. That's one of the reasons the economy was clicking along like it was. The greatest economy the world has ever seen is the quote you hear over and over. But I haven't heard anybody come back with any facts to refute that point. And even with someone who cringed an awful lot in reaction to what I saw out of Donald Trump in the White House, I gave him absolute credit and enthusiastically voted for another four years. Specifically for that reason, baggage notwithstanding. Again, brings us back to Joe Biden. We're going to wipe out COVID. When I heard that, again, my first thought is, you can't keep that promise. It's a virus. How much can mankind, generally speaking, control a virus? Virus does what it does. And it's a particularly sneaky organism. Why? Because it mutates. It changes. It reacts. It's invisible. It spreads from person to person. And even the original variant of COVID-19 was very contagious. There's a dispute as to whether the Delta variant was more or less contagious than the original, but there seems to be a general consensus that Omicron is the most contagious yet. So when you have something that's highly contagious, is invisible, that's capable of mutating so as to continue to be spread, continue to be spread between humans. Exactly how much can mankind, much less a politician, do to quote-unquote wipe it out? But I wasn't responsible for what promises Joe Biden made. 
his campaign was, his staff was, and he individually is, which is why he ought to be specifically held accountable for what he is or is not doing in that regard. And that's why what's going on right now with COVID, where you see some states setting records, even going all the way back to February and March of last year when this thing really took off, in terms of hospitalizations, not necessarily deaths, because again, by all accounts, Omicron isn't particularly deadly in terms of its ultimate outcome, but because of all the people now vaccinated as well. And again, however you feel about vaccination or vaccine mandates, I don't think there's any dispute that the vaccine lessens symptoms and and very significantly lessens the likelihood that you're going to die if you get any of the variants of COVID. So yes, deaths aren't necessarily up, but numbers infestations, diagnoses, positive test outcomes, those are all dramatically up, dramatically up. And now you've got states looking at reinstating mandates, reinstating shutdowns, reinstating masks in schools to the extent they've done away with them to begin with. Businesses are contemplating going back if they haven't all if they haven't maintained that all it all along, going back to people working remotely, shutting down headquarters. You're looking at at taking a dramatic step backwards on all these issues that a lot of us have, have, have been way past the point of being over, being done with, wanting to move on. A vast majority, I believe, I haven't seen numbers to support this, but I absolutely, without any question, believe the vast majority of Americans are so ready to move on and are going to very emphatically resist any effort to haul them back into the restrictions that to a large degree we've moved beyond. And that's where I think to some degree you've got this very predictable outcome here that's going to play out over the next few months which is, without any question, a dramatic increase in numbers because of the contagiousness of Omicron, combined with a dramatic resistance, an emphatic resistance, to going back to the restrictions that to, to at least to some degree, if not large degree, that we've come out of, how, how do those things reconcile each other? To some degree, that's, that's the irresistible force meets the immovable object. What's going to give in that process? And the overlay for all of that is what? A campaign promise from this president to, quote-unquote, eradicate COVID-19. How does that play out? How does that play out in conjunction with, at this juncture, what you would have to say is the failure of Build Back Better? None of it's good. None of it's good. Right now we're a little past the quarter hour, so we're taking a break. We come back, and we'll talk about a new invention Coming out of Sweden, just released, that may play, to some degree, a role in all of this. But right now, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford, in for Tony Katz, on Tony Katz Today. La, 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 la. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford, in for Tony Katz, on Tony Katz Today. Thrilled to be with you discussing the impact on 
what will be ultimately the Biden legacy of what's currently going on with COVID. Because again, I'm not the guy who advised him on his campaign promises. We know what they were, but and we know what they were specifically relating to COVID. So what's going on with COVID? You're looking at a lot of these mandates coming back, no doubt in my mind, because I'm sure in large degree, the contagiousness of the relatively new Omicron variant and the number of cases that are being diagnosed. As a, as a sports fan, and in particular a football fan, you look at some of the teams where numbers last week, the Cleveland Browns had over 20 players that were in COVID protocols, had to delay the game so that they could play it. I think it's now being played 5 o'clock today. And, and I just take that as a little test market for what's going on across the country and what, it, what is going to continue to go on as we see the impact of this. You're not getting away from it. You're not getting away from the number of cases. You're not getting number away, from the, away from the number of hospitalizations and the potential impact that that's going to have on things like mask mandates and continued vaccine mandates and whatnot. And, 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 and I think that's just a virus doing what viruses do. And frankly, I don't think any politician at any level is responsible for that. That's what viruses do. But I can say that and also say that politicians ought to be accountable for either delivering or not delivering on their campaign promises because they are the ones who chose to make those promises. And if someone voted for them in any part, based on a campaign promise, then that same voter ought to hold them accountable. And those voters in the middle, those voters that can be swayed either way, not the diehard Democrats that are going to vote Democrat no matter who the candidate is, and not exactly the same people on the Republican side who are going to go in and vote straight ticket, not much caring who the candidate is. No. But those also aren't the same people that decide elections. Those weren't the same people that decided the 2020 election. It was the people who listened to the campaign promises, those people who formed their own decisions on who they liked and didn't like, and to a large degree, those people who made up their mind they just didn't want to see Donald Trump in the White House anymore for whatever reason, including mean tweets and unforced errors that he all too often committed, that even for those of us on his side, those of, a, of us rooting for him to be successful, had to cringe an awful lot. But those people that were swayed one way or the other by the campaign, by the debates, by campaign promises. Those same people ought to be holding Joe Biden accountable. And when you right now stack on top of that, the apparent failure of Build Back Better because of Joe Manchin's announcement on Sunday, we'll see where it goes. Never say never in politics. But you got to believe that doesn't bode well for whatever legacy Joe Biden expects to have coming out of his presidency. In the meantime, speaking of COVID, I was fascinated to see a release just over the weekend that a microchip company based in Stockholm, Sweden, has announced the release of a new microchip implant that can carry what? An electronic vaccine passport. That is your vaccination records. You can now have implanted under your skin they said in your arm or even in the web of your hand between your forefinger and your thumb. And you can carry that on a chip that can then be scanned by any number of different electronic devices for you to then be able to establish your vaccine status. Now, I'm 
how much older than 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 producer Ari am, am I? Probably thirty years, probably somewhere around one of those. I uh, I turned thirty on Wednesday. Yeah, I'm well, I'm thirty four years older. Than you. you don't look a day over twenty six <laughs> years yeah, older. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh, okay. So we're, there there are like two or three other generations in between uh, uh, yours and mine. I I, I I I think. But when I saw this, Ari, my my flesh crawled. I mean, literally, I just went, oh my god, Ari. As, as 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 someone who just turned thirty, how are you feeling about an implant under your skin with your vaccine passport? I don't care. Fine with me. <laughs> You're good with Doesn't it. Doesn't bother me. No, no, no. What what if um, our employers here at Emma's said, you know what, you have to have that, and we're going to scan you when you come in every morning? Okay. No. <laughs> I don't. I, I'm a, I don't. I don't care if the government's watching me. Like, watch away. I promise you, I'm not that entertaining. Like. So, I already have a phone in my so, pocket that I'm being tracked. So with. wait a minute. So like, like okay, if you say you don't care, anybody's watching you. The Fourth Amendment's only for guilty people. The rest of it don't, don't have to worry about it. I'm not going to force anyone else to, but I don't care if I do. <laughs> well, there you go. A generational difference. In the meantime, uh, it's been great filling in for Tony Katz. Uh, I'm Guy Relford on Tony Katz today.